In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we're going to start off by talking about uh, the last presidential debate. We'll spend a couple of segments breaking that down. Um, and then our final segment, we'll, we'll focus today on kind of our last ditch arguments um, against reelecting Trump, uh, you know, in advance of next week's uh, presidential election. I realize that many of you may have already voted, but for any of those who haven't and who want arguments to share with their relatives or, or that might convince themselves uh, why they shouldn't vote for Trump, hopefully this will, will do that job. Um, before we get started, though, I do want to call out that this is our 53rd episode Ooh. of The First Spectrum. We are old enough to be a few years younger than my dad. <laughs> uh, most of you, most of you, don't know why that's funny. Probably, but yeah, probably. Uh, pretty much every episode after we stop recording, we'll we'll re- like revel in in reaching a, a new height of episode number. And usually, Nathan makes the joke, which is you know been almost 50 times now <laughs> that it's in some relationship to its dad's age yeah like when yeah. we hit episode 40 i was like wow we're old enough to be my dad when he was 40 <laughs> so yeah that's a little glimpse into our post episode routine um yeah but but if you think I just that wanna... if, if you think that we're not funny when we speak you should hear us when we're when we're not recording yeah when we're not on the air it just falls flat every time <laughs> no uh, um but uh, yeah so so we are about to hit our one year anniversary of making yes. this show. Our first episode was published on October thirtieth, two thousand nineteen. Yeah, and you know we'll hit that anniversary just a few days before the twenty twenty presidential election, which we so, didn't plan. But <laughs> so is this our anniversary episode, or is that going to be our anniversary episode? I think it's the next one. Okay, I think that's fine. I think. Yeah. Okay, I think well, that's right. hopefully it'll be something to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. But for uh, those of you who have listened to our, our, our whole show, um, you've spent almost 70 hours listening to us talk. Hmm. So just yeah. thank you so much for your time and attention um, and for tuning in. Yeah, absolutely. We really do appreciate it. We have really enjoyed this. Uh, it really has made what I desperately hope is the last year of Trump's presidency. Uh, <laughs> it has made it a little bit more bearable to be able to come on here, talk to Michael, share my ideas, hear Michael's ideas, and also hear some interesting feedback when we talk to you all personally. I've had some really nice feedback from some good friends of mine that listen mm-hmm. to the show, uh, to family members that listen. And it really does it really does mean a lot to me. I mean, even if this is just, you know, two idiots with a podcast yelling yelling into a microphone, sometimes that's what you need, you know? <laughs> Oh, it's certainly what valuable. I need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, thank you so much. It's been a it's been a great year and looking forward to the next one. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right, so Michael, before we get started on the debate, uh, do you have COVID numbers for us? Yes, absolutely. So uh, at this point, worldwide, we've had 44.7 million people who've contracted COVID. That's mm -hmm. up from 41.4 million last week, which is a 7.9% increase over the week before, which is a, a faster increase than we had than we had last week. Um, so far, 1.18 million people have died in the world from COVID, and that's up from 1.13 million last week, which is a 4.4% increase in total deaths. In the U.S., we have hit 9.1 million people who've contracted COVID, which is up from 8.6 million last week, which is a 5.8% increase. So at this point, what that means is that one in every 35 people in the U.S. has contracted this disease. Mm. If you recall back to our first couple of episodes, we talked, when we were first talking about COVID, we talked about the fact that you would know someone that had this disease and you will know someone that has died from this disease. Yeah. And the fact is that you do. Yeah. In fact, just today, I uh, got an email from a student who had to miss class because of COVID. And wow. that is not the first time that's happened. Sure. I, I have had several students who have had to miss class because of COVID. I've had several students that have told me about how they had COVID over the summer. Mm -hmm. And so Michael said 1.3 million people worldwide have died. Let me just put that into perspective real quick. Um, that is approximately the population of the state of Maine. So think if every single person in the state of Maine just died, like that is how many people have died from this virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Worldwide. Yeah. And in the U.S., we've hit 233,000 deaths, which is up from 227,000 last week, which is a, a 2.6% increase. Um, so, so, you know, as we've called out in the past, since we last recorded an episode, 6,000 more people have died. Um, and COVID is on track to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S. for 2020. Mm. Yeah. So... Wear a mask. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I don't even have a joke to say about it this time. It's just, yeah. this is ridiculous. It gets more and more ridiculous. The president keeps trying to downplay it. He was complaining during a rally this week that the media spends so much time talking about COVID, COVID, COVID. He was like, you know, if a, if a jet plane crashed and 500 people died, you know, the media wouldn't cover it because they'd be talking about COVID. And my thought was, well... 6,000 people have died in the last week of yeah. COVID. So, yeah, that would still be a bigger story than if a jet plane had crashed carrying 500 people. Yeah. And yes, we do talk about that. Yeah. Like, it didn't even happen. We talk happen. about every like, large-scale death. Like, come on, dude. Yeah. I just... He's trying to deflect because he know he did a terrible job. He's doing everything he can to just... To sideline the horror show that has been his pandemic response mm -hmm. and it's completely transparent and based on the polling people are really seeing that yeah it's true it's true and and we should definitely talk about that a little bit more as we go through the debate because a yes. number of his tactics were specifically focused on trying to um mitigate his responsibility in yeah. the, how bad the pandemic has been so yeah. with that you want to get started on the debate let's talk about the debate so Sweet. 
I I actually might surprise a few people that have been longtime listeners of the show, because uh, I'm gonna say that debate was hands down the strongest debate performance Joe Biden has had this entire debate season, and yep, you know. He wasn't exactly the guy that ran in circles around Paul Ryan while Paul Ryan choked on his own spit and then vomited. <laughs> but he was he was getting Emphasis there. Emphasis added. <laughs> he was getting there. Like I saw instances in which I saw that old Joe Biden. Yeah. Like and look, and I've to be been, fair, like that was a long time ago, and yeah. he's an older guy, so that's pretty impressive. Yeah, exactly. Like I have been, I I have not been a fan of Joe Biden from the very beginning, and I've been very clear when i've thought he's done a terrible job in debates and i'm you know i've talked about how i really think that the bar is super low for him and that's that's terrible but honestly i thought that he did a better job in that debate against donald trump than harris did in her debate against against pence i really agree with you i totally agree he was like he was very effective at both parrying trump's like like ridiculousness and also landing these well phrased well thought out points. Yeah. I mean there were points where there were points where he stumbled but like nothing like we've seen from yeah. him. He managed past. like let me put it this way. He managed to go 50 whole minutes before he said something that pissed me off. <laughs> I mean Bernie's not even able to do that most of the time. Uh, I like, don't think I, I do that most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you know, he started pissing me off when he started talking about healthcare. Uh, and sure. he started like talking about how, oh, Medicare for all, I'm not for Medicare for all, and that's so wonderful. It's like, oh my God, you idiot. <laughs> well, he's definitely not. So at least he was he's not. I know. It. it sucks. I hate the fact that he's not for Medicare for all. You know, it's a completely wasted opportunity, but he's not. I mean, the fact that Trump keeps trying to tell us, oh, yeah. Biden is for like a super popular policy that would completely get rid of, you know, the concept of being uninsured in the United States. And then Biden's rebuttal is, no, I am not for that incredibly important and popular policy. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that. So so I want to I want to get that out of the way real quick. The The criticisms that I have of Biden, it pisses me off when he talks about. When he, when he throws Medicare for all under the bus, um, when he basically like talks about how wonderful, you know, private insurance is and he uses that false talking point that, oh, it's about choice. You know, mm -hmm. if you have a public option, it's about choice. Let's let's talk about choice. Just one sec. Like one sec real quick. You know, and then I'll shut up about Medicare for all. Um, but but let me just talk about choice for one sec. So the only thing. That a public option gives you the choice of is where your money comes from mm -hmm. if it's medicare for all there's no such thing as in network which means that you can choose your doctor you can choose your treatment you can choose your medications like you can choose pretty much everything you can choose which hospital you go to because everything's a network the reason why you lose certain things like that when you when you uh switch plans or when you're given a different plan is because of the idea of something being in network and not in network. But if everything's in network, then you can just choose which one you want to do. The least important choice that you can make in healthcare is basically which pocket the money comes out of. 
That's the least important thing. And it pisses me off that he's continuing that corporate talking point. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think it's like, it's really frustrating. I think that it probably is an asset for trying to win over undecided voters to be able to very clearly say, like, you know, uh, that he's not changing that much about healthcare. But the problem is that that undermines the fact that we should be arguing that, that one, it's a very, like Medicare for all is a very popular policy. And two, um, that we should be arguing for but why it's a good thing and a strong thing. And like all, all the facts are on that side. It's, it's just pandering to, to but there are so many people that don't normally vote because they feel like every single candidate is just another corporate sellout. There are a lot mm. of, there's a gold mine of people that don't vote that are on the left Mm-hmm. that just don't feel like there's ever been a candidate that has represented them. The amount of Democrats that don't vote, there's a significantly larger percentage of them than mm-hmm. there are people that are undecided, that there are people in the middle. So I I, I don't think it's strategic. I think it's just the fact that it's who he is. It's his ideology. He's a corporate mm-hmm. centrist. I, I respect the fact that he's honest about that. I respect the fact that he never... Like, I respect him more than Harris, who pretended to be for Medicare for all and then completely, like, and then completely flipped on it. Yeah. But, you know, (laughs) I disagree with them. I did like that he finally had a good, like, very solid response to Trump's, like, pretending that he was much, is much more extreme than he is. He said, quote, he thinks he's running against somebody else. He's running against Joe Biden. I beat all those other people because I just agreed with them. I was like, okay, thank you. Thank I mean, you, you didn't beat them because to... you disagreed with them. You beat them because, you know, you managed to convince people yeah. that you were the best one to beat Donald Trump. Most people actually disagreed with you on policy. Yeah. So that part also pissed me off a little bit. But, yeah. I mean, at least he was like, I mean, he to an extent, he was saying exactly what I was thinking, which was, dude, you're not running against Bernie Sanders. I wish you were running against Bernie Sanders, <laughs> but you're not running against Bernie Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> like, You know, and then he was saying his bullshit about fracking mm-hmm. yeah. you know and, and but i will say he did manage to slip in there during that conversation something that actually did make me very happy and i'll go ahead and like i've said the two things that i really hated about joe biden i'll go ahead and transition into the positives um unless you have anything you want to say against joe biden no, I think you're pretty much covering it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but that actually did lead him into basically saying, you know, the ultimate goal is to get off of fossil fuel. Yes. Yeah, And totally. what I thought was hilarious was when he said that, Trump pretended like, oh, that's a got you. Yeah. Oh, look, he just admitted oh. it. He just admitted it. <laughs> he wants to shut down oil. <laughs> it's like, y- y- you do realize how stupid you sound, right, Don? Like, you do realize that most people want us to be on renewable energy and not on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So acting like that's some huge got you, like <laughs> you're just, yeah. you're just so out of touch. Yeah. He was, he was, he was very good at um, responding to that point. I mean, he clearly knew it was coming. Like yeah. they're just trying to appeal to people that believe, you know, Trump's talking points more than Biden's talking points in Pennsylvania. Yeah. But he, he did seem to be trying to cover, a little bit and and walk back um you know any potential uh points that might be made like about him being against fracking he was like uh um quote 
I do rule out banning fracking because the answer is we need we need other in industries to transition to ultimately a complete zero emissions by 2025. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is like, you know, specifically trying to protect fracking and, and, and have other industries compensate for that. But then he went on to say that he's going to try to, they're going to have plans to capture the emissions from fracking and make sure that, yeah. you know, it doesn't have harmful environmental impacts. So, which honestly, I, I was, I was talking to my dad about this recently, but my, my, so my dad was making the point that the argument that Joe Biden is making is that we need to stop using it as fuel. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we stop extracting it and using it for other things. I mean, for example, we use oil to make plastic. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea, like basically his argument was this resource is limited and it's too valuable to just keep burning. So, you know, yes, you might, you might still continue to extract it. Yes, you might try to capture the admissions, but you don't burn it. Instead, you you know you use it for other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, we have an unlimited resource of energy. Yeah, which all around I, us. If that we if we get good at capturing, could yeah. replace the usage of a scarce resource. It's a good argument. Yeah, like wind, for example, which according to Donald Trump, apparently <laughs> wind emits more carbon than natural gas. Well, to be fair, his I think I think the point he was trying to make was that the manufacture of wind turbines and transportation ends up emitting more total emissions than I think natural gas. He didn't he he, he set up the comparison and didn't finish the comparison. Okay. Like, but I, was he, but I think he was trying Yeah, I think he was trying to say that um yeah, the manufacture well, and dis and like and movement well, that, from other but, countries. But that's because the energy from it comes from fossil fuels. From fossil fuels, like, exactly. If the yeah. energy to manufacture it and the energy to transport to, 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 to transport it didn't come from fossil fuels, then yeah. it wouldn't have that impact. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I, 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 that's a, and then he brought up the it's, birds. It's a distinction again. without a difference. It's just a weak, weak. Oh, and the birds! It kills yeah. all the birds. <laughs> yeah, and and you know earlier. This year, he said that like the sound of windmills cause cancer. Yeah. Again, but but they're, but they're, Joe Biden knows nothing about. Yeah, wind. <laughs> yeah. Like 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 in the first debate, you know, Trump got his panties in a twist. Like when Joe Biden talked about being smart, he's like, "Oh, you don't you talk to me about being yeah. smart? Oh, don't talk to me about being smart. You're so smart. You're so you're so dumb. You're so dumb. I'm so smart. <laughs> like, <laughs> dude, you." You think windmills cause cancer, you fucking idiot? Like, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Like he he recently was in a rally, in which he was basically making the argument that if we have a system where wind is our primary source of energy, that that means that on days where you don't have any wind, the TVs don't work. <laughs> you do know that you can store energy, right? Yeah. That's really funny. No, he walks yeah. around with his phone plugged into the wall. He's like, my phone doesn't work. It's unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't believe in batteries. Batteries cause yeah. cancer. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so now that we have some of our criticisms of, of Joe Biden out of the way, which, again, are more about his policies yeah. than about his, his performance. Yeah. And those yeah. we and knew about. And we're talking about just his performance. Yeah. He did well. I mean, yeah. he did really I well. Agree. Yeah, I totally agree. 
one thing I do want to call out as well, I, I wanted to get your thought because we always have maybe a little bit different thoughts about the moderators. But what did you think? I thought I thought Kristen Welker did actually a, a pretty good job. Yeah, I I thought she did wonderfully. Now, to be fair, I, I do think a part of that was the fact that, you know, she people could get muted. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't I don't I don't know if it was specifically her that was allowed to press the mute button or if it was like sure. the like people in some box. I I don't know how that worked. But yeah. but yeah, I I thought she did well. You know, she wasn't mm-hmm. trying to appease anybody. She was just asking questions and I thought yeah. they were good questions. I thought you so know? too. I thought I thought she did a like you know, I, I used to I used to hold uh you know, um Chris Wallace Chris. in his uh, in his moderation of the debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the second one in 2016, as like the gold standard, I thought she did even better than he did back then. So yeah, yeah no, I I was impressed with her. I usually, she's probably the only moderator this entire campaign season that I've been impressed with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought she did a couple of things, like because moderators have a fairly limited set of tools for controlling a conversation. Like they pretty much can ask questions and then kind of redirect candidates and things like that and control time. But I thought she did a few things that make, make to me a really big difference. And, and one was that she wasn't afraid to get them back on topic when they wandered off. So there were a couple times, a number of times where, where Trump tried to try to derail the conversation to focus on erroneous claims about Biden getting money from, um, yeah foreign governments yeah. and more than once she like interrupted him and asked him to like refocus on the policy question that she asked which yeah i thought was like really very impressive like the idea that a moderator is going to go out there and interrupt the president of the united states but in yeah. a way that like he he like actually got him back on track that was impressive yeah and the second thing was that and, and I don't know if she wrote the questions. I presume probably not. But the questions themselves, I thought, were really good yeah. in that they they framed the question. Instead of just outright asking um, the question, they framed the questions really well with the facts and context that kind of put them in their position. So like when she asked about um, specifically issues that didn't really have a factual basis, um, she couched them in people's concerns rather than their rather than like their claims. Like one one thing that stands out to me is she asked Joe Biden about people's concerns that you know a public option would lead to social or government controlled healthcare, rather than asking a question which is a is close but misleading. Like you know, how will your plan not lead to government controlled healthcare? Yeah, you know, it, and yeah. I think that can make a really big difference in in getting the candidates to answer the right question that we actually want to know the answer to, and also um, helping to just contextualize the information that, that is then presented. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that, you know, most of the questions were done from a, like, from a reasonable perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't feel like a talking point. It didn't feel like necessarily a question that was a huge talking point. I, I like it when moderators do ask tough questions, And I mean, the way I see it is tough questions are an opportunity for a candidate to demonstrate like how good they are at at answering those. Like if it was coming (laughs) from, you know, an opposition, then how good is their response going to end up being, you know? So, so yeah, I thought she did a pretty good job of that. And I thought that 
she did a fairly good job of sort of calling out um both of them for some of their limitations i mean i i would say that the question about um healthcare government option i mm-hmm. i would frame that it not frame that as i'm worried that it will lead to uh government run healthcare and more i am hopeful that it will but <laughs> that's just me yeah. um but <laughs> but like the the important point is that she kept it on track and i learned so much more mm-hmm. about the can't well i mean okay maybe i didn't learn much because i you know i spend half my time you know digging through their platforms but i feel like people that didn't know about their platforms probably knew a lot more about it yeah. uh, by the end of the debate and 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 i think that it also gave us a chance to see who the candidates really were because mm-hmm. i mean i i will one thing i will say the only good thing that i'll say about trump is that this was probably the best debate performance i've ever seen him do absolutely now if that bar were lower it would be in the mantle of the earth <laughs> but yeah. It was still but, the best, you know, performance I've ever seen him do. Yeah. But even with that, he really didn't spend enough time talking about specific policy. Like yeah. he was calmer, he was uh, he came off as less of an asshole, but it there, he really didn't talk that much about policy. It was mostly, you know, talking about how well he's done without giving mm-hmm. specifics and personal attacks. Yeah. I mean, even that I am like thankful for like if he's just a an asshole and a bully up there then the counter argument from people that support him is well i don't like him but you know i like what he's done for the country and (laughs) whereas if if he actually has to spend time talking about his record which is weak then you know at least there's a little glimmer of a chance that people that are actually interested in reading between the lines will um you know, actually get more information out of it. Now, I'm not really holding out hope for people that are saying, well, he's an asshole, but I support him anyway. But, yeah. um, you know, at, at least like the p- purpose of the debate, specifically to help undecided voters, um, you know, make up their mind, was served better for both of them by the uh, their actual like focus on, on substance. Um, rather than just yelling loudly yeah and there's one there's one other very specific very important policy area that i heard biden talk about and it's probably the first time i've heard him talk about this and it made me so happy minimum wage Mm -hmm. he finally talked about minimum wage and like this entire time i've kind of been of the of the concern that you know it says that on his website but I don't really hear him talk about it. I don't really hear him make him ar- him make arguments for it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he'll sign it if it goes on his desk. But is he going to fight for it? And sure. he fought for it. Yeah. You know, he he talked about the importance of a living wage. He talked about the importance of how, like, if you're working full time, you you gotta be making a living. Mm-hmm. Like he was sounding a lot more populist. He was making a real argument for yeah. a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Yeah. And, you know, I, I actually believed like, oh, my God, he he might actually fight for that. And hell, if if Democrats take over the Senate, we might get that. Yeah. Like 
imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was I would thought that was actually really strong. I was impressed that he he did that, and he even committed to um, pushing for that even during a pandemic, pivoting to, yeah. to basically make the point that even during a pandemic, that sh- that should not fall on the shoulders of um, the least well off, like lowest earners of our society. If we can't afford during a pandemic to pay people a, a, a living wage, then that requires government stimulus to small businesses to help them stay afloat. Because ultimately, like ultimately, we we want small businesses to be able to stay open so they can employ people, and we expect that they employ people at a rate that people can survive on, and that's yeah. what the, the minimum wage is for. Um, and he even hit back against Trump when Trump was like, well, if we're going to have a $15 minimum wage, it's going to close businesses. And he said, there's just no evidence for that. Yeah. I was like, like dang, finally yeah. pushing back on that like conservative um, yeah. economic talking point. I mean, basically, the studies on minimum wage have been like, there's enough studies that show that they're it can sometimes be a slight job loss mm-hmm. that is often able to warrant some credence to that talking point. However, the results on that are very mixed. Mm-hmm. Like it's not always a foregone conclusion that raising the minimum wage is automatically going to lead to a raise in unemployment. That's, that's not always the case. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but yeah. what's important is that even when there is a little bit of a drop or a little bit of a rise in unemployment, and it's usually pretty small, it always bounces back. And not only does it bounce back, but it lifts more people out of poverty. Yeah. And and that that right there is extremely important because the reason why it bounces back is because the people who have been lifted out of poverty are able to spend more money and stimulate the local economy. Yeah. Because if you are making less than a living wage, you're not going out to eat. You're not spending your money on local businesses to, you know, buy, uh, you know, buy gifts, buy luxuries. You're just mm-hmm. you're just trying to keep as much money as you possibly can in order to live. But if you're making more money, if you're making a living wage, you know, enough to, to really live comfortably, you're spending more money. And the more money you spend in your local economy, the more businesses thrive. The more businesses thrive, the more they need to hire people. And not only, yeah, not only are you making more money, but more of your money is going to discretionary items, which then mm. help like stimulate, um, you know, consumer spending in the economy. To your point, like we know that being poor is really expensive because you can't make choices for your long-term well-being, and you have to like make just, you know, this. You have to fill in your expenses with whatever stopgap measures can cover you in the short term. So as you make more money, you're actually able to make better choices for yourself and also spend more on discretionary items in your economy. Overall, overall I think to your point like the focus the the simple econ 101 view of the minimum wage focuses on the immediate short-term impact to um, a business. You raise costs for business, Businesses have to do something to lower costs. That's that's like the mindset. But the fact is that, you know, it's not just raising costs for a business. It's it's raising costs for a business that then are injected into the economy, which had then have the opportunity to flow through and like 
go back, it, like return in some ways as revenue to that business and other businesses. Yeah, it's not nearly as simple as as Republicans yeah. arguing against a minimum wage would would often assume. Yeah, and I actually want to give Trump a tiny bit of credit for an argument for the argument that he made about this, where he was really close to stumbling on the truth, but came up <laughs> Man, with the wrong that, conclusion. Another, the low bar thing happening again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so his argument against this was basically that all states are different, that the mm-hmm. cost of living in all states is, is very different. And so the argument there is if you have a minimum wage, a, a, a federal minimum wage that is this high, that is you know $15 an hour, that that's not going to be necessary everywhere. And there yeah. is definitely truth to that. There is definitely truth to the fact that there is a different cost of living Absolutely. in each state. But I would actually argue that the conclusion to make on that is so the federal minimum wage should be like a very solid living wage. Mm-hmm. And, and in most, you know, and in most places, that would be around $15 an hour. But the argument to be made based on Trump's point is that there are some states that might want to raise their minimum wage even higher than that. Yeah. So. You know, we can have reasonable arguments as to what that specific, like what the federal minimum wage should be and how states that have a cost of living that is significantly higher than the federal minimum wage, how they should accommodate for that. But Mm -hmm. that's not an argument for not having a federal minimum wage. That's not an argument for not raising the federal minimum wage. That's an argument for raising the minimum wage in states even after we've, you know, raised the federal minimum wage. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I mean, we spent a fair amount of time talking about minimum wage, but it is a really important thing, and it, yeah. this is like I feel like one of the first times it's really gotten time yeah. on stage during one of these debates because so much of it has been focused on, like the fact that the world is burning down, yeah. and <laughs> that unfortunately often when you know we're so busy putting out these fires that are big and right in front of us and new that we forget the fact that the smoldering decay of our our low uh wage earner like compensation the 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 burning down of that that ability to actually cover the cost of of living is a problem that is not super flashy but a a completely fundamental one in our society right now and one that we absolutely have to solve it underlies so many uh deeply rooted economic problems and inequalities in our society. So if we don't get that right, we're not going to get much else right. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? Because the world sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's in the name. (laughs) (laughs) No, because, you know, when you look around, there's a lot of really bad things happening in the world. You know, there's... There's, you know, the coronavirus, there's uh, there's wars, there's the Trump administration. You know, it's things are difficult. But if you really do look around you, you do realize that good actually is everywhere. You know, you when you're really looking for it, you can find it. So, Michael, what is our good actually for this week? So this week, um this good actually actually comes from 
uh, another movie. So our original our idea for this came from Love Actually, and and finally we're getting around to another movie, which is the new Borat film. Which now, I, is so funny. Yeah. I have not seen this yet, so no spoilers, please. Yeah, no spoilers. I can't imagine there's much of a twist ending or much like plot-driven. <laughs> like You'd be surprised. Oh, really? You'd good. be surprised. <laughs> good. I, I, can't wait. I really can't wait to see it. I've heard nothing but good things so far. Um, but yeah. apparently, there was some pretty heartwarming stuff that occurred, uh, even while Sasha Baron Cohen was trolling the shit out of people. <laughs> yeah. So there's this one character in the movie. There's this one person in the movie. Um, her name is uh, Janice Jones. And she base in the movie, she is basically this uh, babysitter for Sasha Baron Cohen's daughter or the, you know, obviously it's a prank. Like they're, they're pranking her, but, um, but she's this unwitting victim of a trolling prank who acts as a babysitter for Sasha Baron Cohen's daughter. Now she thought that they were just filming a documentary. Um, and basically in the movie, she thinks that Sasha Baron Cohen's character, that, that Borat is going out to try to buy breast implants for his daughter and to basically like give her away. Um, Can I just clarify how old his daughter is in this? Uh, she's 15. She's played oh, by Jesus. a 24 year old actress but she's playing a 15 year old. I see. Um, so anyway, there's, there's, there are these moments in which, uh, his daughter who, who in, in the movie, her name is tutor, um, is basically talking about all of these myths that she's heard about, uh, bad things that happen if women masturbate. Um, and also talking about, um, how basically she's, you know, like the role of women is in her mind is to like do everything that their father says. And just, there's this beautiful moment where they're sitting in a car and uh, Jones is talking to tutor and she's basically saying, look, you're a beautiful and smart girl. You don't need to listen to your father. You can be your own person. You can be anybody you want to be. And it was just so sweet and so wholesome and so important. And so unscripted. And so unscripted. She was being trolled. She was being trolled. And she, and like in my mind, she was the, she was the most wholesome person in the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And like, I, and the thing is when I was watching the scene, I was thinking, okay, this isn't real. Like they scripted this scene. They had mm. to have scripted this scene. No one is this good to a perfect stranger, like to a complete stranger. Nobody, nobody's good, this good to a complete stranger, but no, she was. And it just made me feel so good. It just gave me so much hope for the world. And to make things even better, um, apparently there's been this, uh, she was actually a little bit upset that, uh, she hadn't with, with how much she got paid for, uh, for doing the movie. Cause she didn't actually know like at the time what the movie was going to end up being. Yeah. And there was actually this crowdfunding, campaign that raised like a few thousand dollars to, to help compensate her for it which mm. that just makes me so happy yeah that is awesome i i am so blown away that our good actually came from borat of all <laughs> things <laughs> that is excellent and really heartwarming i well i can't wait to see yeah. it and you know and and you know who else is surprised by that hmm. and my wife <laughs> <laughs> and that's good actually <laughs> 
So now we are continuing with our discussion about the final debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So one of the things that I think we do need to spend some time talking about is the back and forth about COVID. Yeah, I agree. That's that's definitely I mean, that's that's usually like the first conversation that they always have. Yeah. And. You know, once again, Trump really did not have good answers. No. I mean, even when you're lying, it's hard to have good answers when when the facts are just this obvious. Like he he started right like right out of the gate. His first claim that like they expected 2.2 million people to die, and so the fact that only 222,000 have died is a, is a huge win. Yeah. So you know where that number comes from? The the two million people dying. That is the prediction. If we did nothing, exactly. Like that was the if we do absolutely nothing at all, no social distancing, nothing. Like that was the number for that. Mm-hmm. Like there were a lot of other numbers that were presented where they were like, okay, if you have, if everyone wears masks, here's where it would be. Mm-hmm. If, um, if all hospitals have the, you know, are are staffed properly, if they have the right equipment, this is where it will be. Um, if manufacturers are manufacturing more hospital equipment to make sure that they remain stocked. This is what it's going to be. If people socially, if people socially distance properly, this is what it's going to be. Yeah. So, so the very like, baseline that no one would ever expect us to actually reach, because of course we would take, we would presume to take action like against this extremely deadly disease is that 2 million. And, and literally like, no one thought that that would ever was ever going to occur, and if that did occur, that would be like beyond negligence. That would be yeah, uh, yeah. And also, but just also to say, this has not stopped killing people yet. Yeah. So, it hasn't. <laughs> and also one of the things that I want to remind people of, a long time ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic, Trump said that if only two hundred thousand people die then mm. that's a success. Like he yeah. was he was setting that as the success bar. And we criticized him for that at the time because mm-hmm. that number right there was one of the if we don't do enough numbers that had been yeah. projected. Well, now it's exceeded even that. Like yeah. now it's exceeded even his own horrific definition of success. Yeah. So and we've still what got else is there? two and a half months to go. Yeah. It's only been what? nine months of this yeah 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 so it's still going he also made another claim about deaths claiming that our excess mortality rate is one of the lowest in the world so i did want to talk i did want to mention like what that is because that's kind of a new uh number that's recently been been thrown around um because of a study that came out of the cdc uh, where they compared uh the rate of death in the u.s this year compared to previous years. So basically excess mortality is just the additional death that has occurred this year compared to uh, an average year. And the reason they do that is is to approximate not only the, the deaths directly from COVID, but any other asso- potentially associated deaths um, and also any benefit, like if, if, if people are not driving anymore because of COVID and driving deaths go down, you want to capture that benefit too. So excess mortality is, is one way of trying to bake in all of the variables um, when it comes to total deaths. And he falsely claimed that we were one of the best in the world, where 
in fact, a, a study came out uh, from the Journal of American of the American Medical Association, um, which found that of 14 other major countries, the U.S. has the highest per capita excess mortality rate um, of all but two of those countries since the start of the pandemic, and this was this was as of July. So, so definitely a totally false claim, even on that on that point. Yeah. So another interesting moment that happened was, so Donald Trump was trying to make the point that nobody knew how bad this was going to be. Like, that it yeah. just snuck up on everybody. Nobody knew how bad it was going to be. And as soon as he said that, I, I looked at Joe Biden and I was like, bring up the Woodward tapes. <laughs> bring up the Woodward tapes. You know that's what you need to do. Bring up the Woodward tapes. And he brought up the Woodward tapes. And I was like, yes! Yes! That is exactly what you needed to do. Because... God, that we know that's not true. Yeah. We know that Trump purposely lied to the American people about how bad the virus was early on in the pandemic. Yeah. So he knew how bad it was going to be. He know, knew how bad it could have been. And he still lied to people. Yeah. So that claim, the claim of, oh, it's not my fault, is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Which also brings me to another point. Where he was like, th there, was, there was a moment where they asked him about taking responsibility for it. And he said, I take full responsibility. And then I looked over at Biden as soon as he said that. And Biden was like, wait, what? Like, his face was just like, what? Uh, but then, like, literally the next sentence, Trump was like, it's China's fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? But that, I fixed it because <laughs> I banned them, which he didn't exactly do. Yeah. Which also, okay, let's put that, like... Let's go ahead and put that point to rest. Mm -hmm. So th the only point that he has is him banning travel to China or him banning travel from China to China, um, closing borders down to China. Like that's the only point that he keeps making. The problem is that's a really bad point because mm -hmm. when you look at where the cases were coming from at that point in the pandemic, most of them were coming from Europe which he did not ban travel to and from. So that decision really did not have that much of an effect. Like the idea that the argument that he's making of, oh, all these people said that that was such a good idea. You know, all these experts are saying that, you know, I saved so many lives when I did that. No one's saying that. That's mm -hmm. not what the facts are showing. And also we have more per capita deaths than China does. Yeah. So like, even so if the they argument didn't do this is, to us. <laughs> yeah, well, even if the argument is that you slowed down the spread early in the pandemic, you still had a terrible response later in the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, so, which is totally converse <laughs> to his like learning narrative. Like his his big that that was one of the the themes. Like I felt like Trump throughout the debate had a few specific like themes that he tried to rely on pretty heavily and and one of them that he kept going back to was that you know, we're learning about this disease. We're really, we're really starting to get a handle on it. We're just learning a bunch, which, to your point, is is a good tactic if you lived in a vacuum where only Trump's voice was. Which sounds like, oh God, that sounds horrible. It sounds like a nightmare. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but like, like because it it both says, you know, I did as good a job as anybody could have done because we acted on the best information at the time. It also contradicts the narrative that he is a stubborn bully when it comes to dealing with scientific experts, that, that the people on his teams like, um, have a really difficult time getting him to take their good advice. 
And so by saying like, oh, well, we're, we're taking the best advice, we're learning, he's like, he's counteracting both of those things. But to your point, um, he knew. He knew yeah. from early on that this was going to be really bad and really dangerous and really deadly. And um, so there wasn't much to learn. And, and also from it's like early on, we knew some of the key actions that we should be taking, which are still the key actions that we should be taking to protect people, like wearing masks and washing hands and social distancing and things like that. That advice was coming out of the CDC like relatively early on, but it was not, you know, being put out there as a stand as a federal standard and it still hasn't been. Um yeah. From and you know, and let's also not forget the fact that he is holding these massive indoor rallies. Yeah where there's not mandatory mask wearing and simultaneously while he's doing that he's he's making fun of biden mm -hmm. for having rallies that do observe social distancing guidelines yeah like you can't pick a worse person to lead us through a pandemic than donald trump mm -hmm. i mean biden ain't perfect but god yeah i mean just his just his total disregard for even the facts that are currently coming out, like it's, it's not like it's gotten, he's gotten better at, you know, taking advice. He's, he's specifically talked a lot about how we're now rounding the corner of this disease, even while, you know, 40 plus states have seen record breaking new cases. Um, you know, he's still trying to push the narrative that this isn't that big of a deal and that, you know, he, he specifically called out that 99% of people recover from this disease, which is totally not true. Um, if 99% of people survive this disease, we'd only have 91,000 deaths versus the 233,000 that we currently have. And also, like, just because people aren't dying doesn't mean that they're not, that they're recovering. Like, a lot of people are experiencing relatively long-term symptoms um, from this disease. They're not fully recovered yet. So anyway, it was, you know, he, he's, he continues to be totally unanchored to reality when it comes to dealing with this disease. And the fact is that we, we keep seeing that that is having a negative effect. There's no way that you can effectively plan a complex and good response to his disease if, you know, you're not, uh, you're not in connection with reality in that moment. So... Final thoughts on the debate overall. I thought overall, if so I tried to put myself in the position of an undecided voter watching this debate. And I think to, to the, what we talked about earlier, I think it, it would have helped me figure out who to vote for. And I think it's like, I think Biden did a really good job. He had, he did a nice job like parrying Trump's claims like fact-checking him on the important ones and just ignoring the false ones and really looking like the adult in the room the whole time, um, but not like the adult who's about to expire adult, <laughs> like the good kind. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, I thought like I thought he really killed it. I thought Trump did better than usual, but, you know, he he didn't like to your point, he wasn't making like good policy points. He was kind of hammering on some of the well-known, well-tread territory of, of like Republican talking points. Um, so that probably appealed to the people that already agree with him. But as far as yeah. like a, 
uh, a swing voter, I can't imagine that that they looked at those performances side by side and and ended up, you know, being convinced by Trump. Yeah. I definitely got the idea that Trump really does have his own agenda, his own desires. And in 2016, I think he did a reasonably good job of trying to diagnose where the American people were. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he did a reasonable job of trying to position himself as the outsider who is going to go in and fight against corruption. But he can't do that anymore because he is the insider now. He's the president of the United States. And and he instead, he's going for these arguments that are really half-assed that, number one, Joe Biden is this crazy radical leftist, which is laughable. Mm-hmm. And number two, that Joe Biden is the super corrupt one, which, yeah. you know, I, we've talked about ways in which, you know, we can argue that he is corrupt, but no more corrupt than most politicians. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think one of the defining moments was when Trump was asked a question about race and he devolved it into a conversation about Hunter Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, that really does demonstrate that he does not have the capacity to talk about issues that are affecting people outside of his experience. Yeah. And when you're a New York billionaire that was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, that has been given everything his entire life, the people within your experience is a very small audience. (laughs) So you're not doing yourself any favors by staying within that comfort zone. You're not the outsider anymore. You are the insider. And you had to spend some time talking about what you are going to do. And at one point when you were trying to talk about like, when you were talking when when you were trying to talk about uh, Hunter Biden, and Joe Biden retorted with, "The American people don't care about my family; they care about their family." Mm-hmm. And then Trump kind of mocked him for sounding like a, a, a politician, politician when he said that. I was like, "Okay, maybe that is something that politicians do say, but but he's right." Yeah, I don't care about Hunter Biden. I care about the fact that I'm terrified of losing health insurance. I care mm-hmm. about the fact that I'm terrified about the pandemic. And you're not offering me solutions to that. Mm-hmm. It's true. And that's one that's, I was so glad that Joe Biden showed up because many times he fails to effectively tell us about his solutions too, which we know are out there. They're on his website. He's talked about them periodically. But this time, every answer that had, like every question where, you know, he had a, a, a policy response he did really well he talked with specificity about how his plan not just not just that his plans would do x but how they would do it and that really encouraged me and now it's time for one of our favorite segments asshat of, of the, the week. week so nathan who is our asshat this week michael our asshat this week is Everyone's favorite 12-year-old sociopath, Jared Kushner. 
Ah, the Kush. Nice. The Kush. <laughs> oh, what did he do? Finally, he's a uh, he's a uh, an yeah. asset. He's got yeah, finally. He must have been an asset before. He's too uh, asset. No, really? No, this is this is his first time. Wow! Congratulations, um, Jared. That's really a big day. So Jared Kushner had some things to say about Black Americans. Um, so he oh, was good. trying I'm to make. I'm so the... glad I get to see a clear person's opinion <laughs> of Black Americans. <laughs> yeah. So he was trying to defend Donald Trump's record on African Americans. Uh, so he was in this interview on Fox News because, of course, it was on Fox News. Yeah, another said, great quote, place to get your racial commentary. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, quote, One thing we've seen in a lot of the black community, which is mostly Democrat, is that President Donald Trump's policies are the policies that can help people break out of the problems they've been complaining about. But he can't want them to be more successful than they want to be successful. Yeah, let's just take a minute <laughs> to sit with that. Yeah, let's wow. talk. Yeah, talk about hundreds of years of uh, slavery followed by, you know, a hundred plus years of uh, segregation and inequality combined with a criminal justice system that is tantamount to slavery oh that's just complaining yeah they're just complaining <laughs> just, that, you know just bootstrap it i mean black people make up uh 13 of the population but 25 percent of all police killings mm -hmm. uh and approximately a quarter of all black people live in poverty versus like 11 percent of white people but yeah no they're just complaining yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, the average white family has 13 times the wealth of the average black family, but they're just complaining. Yeah. And the major and, and reason the for that is, is, is specifically uh, legal segregation of communities, federal denying of, of home loans uh, to, to black people, um, redlining, all of these incredibly horrible uh, uh, economic racist tactics that led to wealth disparities for generations just complaining yeah and the reason why the system has remained the way it is is just that you know black people don't want success enough yeah god yes. I, so so yeah the the most on its face offensive part of this comment is the complaining thing but to me yeah. the the worst part is that argument that it is that it's pushing like the false narrative of like bootstrapping and that, and it's pulse and it's pushing the racist narrative of lazy black people. Yeah. F fuck you, Jared Kushner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just, so one thing that I would ask someone that, you know, that, that is trying to make the point of, Oh, well, you know, black people just aren't trying to be successful. Okay, so we read the statistics about poverty rates for black people versus white people, all right? There are two conclusions that you would have to make. There are one of two conclusions that you would have to make from those numbers. The first conclusion is that maybe there are unequal structures that have been keeping black people in poverty that have been disproportionately affecting black people, and maybe we should do something about that because, you know, we support equality and we don't like racism. 
Uh, or the second one is there's something just inherent about being black that makes you not want to be successful. And here's the thing. If you believe the latter, you're a white supremacist. Yeah. Like, there's no other way to say it. Yeah. You are basically a, you're a race realist white supremacist. And you be, you honestly believe that there is something biologically different about black people that makes them inferior to white people. Yeah. You are a racist, if that is what you believe. I think that, like, I, I just want to pause a minute. I know this is an asshat, so we shouldn't take too long on it. But, like, I think that is an absolutely critical and fairly and relatively nuanced point. Like, and it is, but it is a logical requirement. So, yeah. so I just want to take a second to, to reiterate and kind of go over that again. So we agree with people that disagree on the, on the cause that outcome disparities exist between white and black communities. Part, uh, those outcomes include economic outcomes. They include, um, incarceration outcomes and they include, um, you know, killings and, and murders and, and killings by police, right? All of those things. To Nathan's point, either you believe that there is something about our society that pushes this subgroup of people to, in a statistically significant way, be treated differently and therefore result in these outcomes, or you believe that it is something different about those people. So therefore, if you deny that it is something structural about our society, if you reject that belief, you, by definition, believe that it is something about the black community, which means that you are racist. That is a logical requirement. There is no argument against that. Those, those components are the, the whole story. That's the complete thing. That's really powerful. It's not just us flinging mud. You know, yeah. it's not just the libs trying to call These anybody are, that doesn't agree with them racist. It is yeah. a logical requirement. Yeah. And I guess we know which one of those Kushner has decided to go with. <laughs> yes, we do. So congratulations to the Kush, Jared Kushner, for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. So for our last segment, we want to talk about, big surprise, Donald Trump. And specifically, we want to talk about, um, with you know the election occurring next week, we want to talk about whether we think he should be president or not. Spoiler alert. <laughs> we yeah. don't. Yeah. If you've listened to literally any episode of the show, much less the 70 hours that we have recorded so far, uh, we don't think he should be. But we figured yeah. that we draw the threads of, that, of those arguments together today in trying yeah. to make one last argument and our last uh, attempt to defeat Donald Trump in the 2020 November election. So. And before we start that, I want to do a little thing called steel manning. So I'm actually going to make the strongest case that I possibly can for the re-election of Donald Trump based on the strongest arguments that his own people make. Mm -hmm. 
All right, but I'm but I'm even gonna go even like even more in depth than they do. Yeah, you're gonna make right? the even better arguments. Yeah. So let's look at what is often touted as Trump's strongest, like the biggest thing he has going for him. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot of Republicans say is, I mean, you might think he's an asshole. He's white but... and rich, so that means he should win. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. No. Okay. Republicans that are, you know, uh, that are not being overt with their innermost thoughts. Um, the argument is you might think he's an asshole, but hey, he's great for the economy. Mm-hmm. So let's look at three important metrics in which when you look at the numbers, they do actually look pretty good for Trump. So let's start out for with unemployment. So unemployment, and, and, let's, and let's actually be even more generous to Donald Trump and all of these economic indicators, I'm going to specifically read them as, you know, before COVID happened. Yep. Like, let's go ahead and pretend that, you know, COVID, nothing about the economic impacts of COVID were Trump's fault. All right, let's let's pretend that for a second. All right. You know, let's give him the best possible like case. Mm-hmm. So, when Donald Trump took office in January of 2017, the official unemployment was uh 4.70%. And um right in February of 2020 before things started going to hell, um official unemployment was 3.5%. So there is a there is a drop in unemployment of uh, a little bit over 1% of official unemployment. But then the libs are going to be like, "Well, but that's official unemployment. You know, what about what about real unemployment?" You know. All right, so real unemployment, which takes into account the fact that, you know, some people might be students, some people might not actively be uh, searching for jobs, that's referred to as U6 unemployment. So let's look at those numbers. All right. Under Trump, those numbers have also dropped. So in January of 2017, U6 unemployment was 9.20%. And then in February, before COVID hit, uh, it was 7%, which is a which is a drop of 2%. Yeah, it's a big so drop. So that's looking over, good, right? Over 3 years, yeah. Yeah, over 3 years unemployment dropped under him. That's wonderful. All right. So let's look at another indicator. Let's look at GDP growth. So in 2016, uh, GDP growth per year was 1.57%. All right. In 2017, it raised to 2.22%. In 2018, it raised to 3.18%. There was, there was a little bit of a drop where it increased by 2.33% 2.33% in 2019, but that's still an increase. You know, that's still not a bad number. Like, that is still a steady rise in the GDP. So, hey, that's not bad either. All right, well, let's look at another metric. Uh, let's look at the Dow. So, you know, the stock market. In the beginning of 2017, uh, the Dow was 22,227.47. And before COVID, in February of 2020, that had increased to 25,561.82. So that's another, that, that's, that's a pretty stark rise. Like, that's an increase. 
So based on those numbers, you could say, yeah, the economy has improved under Donald Trump. Now, let's talk about why even those metrics are bullshit. <laughs> so first off, let's let's start by looking at those metrics. So the important context that you need to get from each of those metrics is the fact that all of them are continuations of the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. So when Obama took office in 2009, like there had like it was right in the middle of the recession. And towards the end of 2009, uh, at the peak of unemployment, it was 17.10%. That's, that's real unemployment. That's U6 unemployment, 17.10%. And, you know, juxtapose that to what we said earlier, where when Trump took office, it was 9.2%. All right? It was approximately, the, the official unemployment was approximately 10%. And when Trump took office, remember, it was, you know, it was around uh, 5%. So it was cut in half under Obama. So it was already going down. That's just a continuation of the Obama administration. With the GDP, all right, during the crash in 2009, um, GDP growth reduced by 2.54%. And then the very next year, GDP growth increased by 2.56%. And if you look at the numbers in the increase per year in both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, they're pretty comparable. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of just a flat line. Like there's a few ups and downs, but it's a pretty flat line. And then the last one, the Dow, you know, during the crash that had gone down to uh, approximately 9,000. And remember by the end of Obama of Obama's presidency, when he left office, it was over twenty-two thousand. So that's a massive increase. So even those three metrics that you would use to give credit to Trump for the economy were just continuations of the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, I don't even think those are good metrics. Yeah, exactly. For how to measure the economy, I would actually say that the best metric to measure the economy is wages, and wages have remained stagnant for the last three to four decades. And look, they've been stagnant under Democrat and Republican presidents, and you can make that point. Obama didn't do a great job of helping that either. But Trump has done nothing for that, has mm -hmm. done nothing to help wages. They've remained stagnant under him. And on top of that, if we're looking at other economic indicators, I mean, look at the deficit. He doubled it even before COVID. He doubled it with his uh, with the tax cuts for the rich that they claimed were going to pay for themselves. You know, another thing that I would say that I don't think is a good indicator of ec of the economy, but that Republicans seem to, and they seem to conveniently not care about it during the Trump administration. On top of that, on top of all of that, under the Trump administration. 2.3 million people have lost health insurance because of his repeal of the mandate, which he was bragging about during the debate. And according to the Economic Policy Institute, if the Affordable Care Act gets repealed, 29.8 million people will lose their health insurance. 
And on top of that, because people are going to have to spend more money on health insurance and less money on you know, other aspects of the economy, other aspects of the local economy, that will result in approximately 1.2 million jobs being lost just because of the repeal of the health of the health care law. Because people will be like, you know, if people have a choice between eating out and paying for health insurance, they're going to pay for health insurance. Mm-hmm. Even the best metrics that Trump have, have, has given us do not justify his reelection. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, like that, that's his, you know, his record over the past four years. If we think about his plans compared to Biden's plans over the next four years, the choice is, is clearer still. You know, it's, yeah. it's a comparison between like uh, what we have seen in response to the pandemic versus these like much more comprehensive plans that Biden has has put forward it's comparison of providing um health care via a public option to everyone and getting everyone on on health care in the u.s versus uh a fictitious plan that has been forthcoming for four years um and potentially kicking you know millions of people off uh with pre-existing conditions off their health insurance um and and you know there's no and it is a myth that Democrats preside over economic contractions more than Republicans do. It's it's a fake thing that Republicans made up to try to get to try to win points on the economy. The fact is that there's no reason to expect that Joe Biden's plans wouldn't lead to um, more economic growth than, than Trump's would, and that's even on his his best metrics. Yeah, yeah, and I mean. You know, the, the biggest indicator that I talked about, the biggest indicator of the economy that I talked about was uh, wages. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, Joe Biden wants to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. According to the Economic Policy Institute, you do that, um, that lifts wages for 33 million workers. Mm-hmm. Like, that pulls people out of poverty. Yeah. It helps to and, fight growing inequality, which has grown under the Trump administration. Yeah. You know, Trump's not for raising the minimum wage, and wages have been stagnant during his administration. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that the federal minimum wage is still seven twenty-five an hour is just is insulting. Yeah. It's been that for my entire life, I think. I'm pretty sure. As long as I've been alive, it's been that. Maybe maybe it was a little lower in the 1990s. But for most of my life, it's been <laughs> the same thing while, while the cost of living has gone up dramatically. Yeah. It is not adjusted for inflation. So even the metrics that he's using just do not reflect reality. He's mm-hmm. just He was just riding the high of the Obama administration, ultimately. Yeah. So he's got nothing. He's like, nothing is due to him being a skilled politician. And a lot of the bad things that are going on right now, at best, are things that he's not doing enough for. Mm-hmm. And at worst, are things that he's actively contributing to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so many. So so even if you set aside all of his horribleness, just as like a human and a leader and the the dangerousness of his rhetoric the harm that it does to like minority communities and like all of those things even if you set aside the things that make him evil 
and just focus on the things that make him a bad president. He's a bad president. Yeah. He's just he's just not he can't do the job. He's totally ineffective at it. We've seen again and again that when he tries to go and do something, when his administration tries to run the government, they fail. They fall flat on their face. And and partially it's because he's putting he's not a good leader, he's not a good manager and he's putting these you know ineffective people into really important administrative positions. One of the things that, one of the major things that um, was like an early indicator that he was going to be bad at this job was how poorly he managed the transition from the Obama administration, right? Like you've got, it is a dead sprint from the moment that it is announced that you're going to become president until inauguration day. For your people, your administration to get in there and learn as much as they can about taking over one of the most complex systems of government in the world. Tons of administrative agencies that are run um, through the executive branch have to be seamlessly transitioned to a whole other workforce. And so, but, but we didn't see this plan come out of the Trump administration. We didn't see his, his nominees fulfill their positions or 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 step onto the job knowing what they were doing and so from the, from day one they were on their back foot and we've seen their poor administration the whole time you know in its most stark example it's in the poor way that they've they've handled the pandemic even if trump had gotten out of their way the the people um that he had, had in these places the the limitations that he's put on their budgets the you know the the hamstringing that he's he's done and and the poor management that he has administered would have left us in a really bad spot like there's a reason that almost you know almost 550 kids can't be connected to their parents yes it's because of a horrible and inhumane policy which makes him an evil president but it's also because he's an ineffective president he's an ineffective manager because he's not putting the people in the, in in the right seats in order to get these administrative jobs done correctly the people that administered this this program under ice did a shitty job and ultimately the buck stops with him so even his inhumanity if you're not convinced by that be convinced by the fact that he's bad at this job yeah even if you like the policies that he advocated for in 2016 you know Mm -hmm. you like the fact that he wanted to build a wall and he wanted to make mexico pay for it he didn't build a wall no. and Mexico did not pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Cause it was, yeah. cause it's not there. Like he, there are some places where he reinforced some barriers mm-hmm. and there was like a few miles of additional barrier that he did build, but Mexico paid for none of that. And, and he's going around lying to your face, claiming that we did build a wall. Oh, and mm-hmm. Mexico totally paid for it. Yeah. It's just but, a yeah. lie. And look, so if Bernie Sanders became the president, you know, remember his signature promise was Medicare for all. If he spent four years and did not achieve Medicare for all, and then he went all over the country telling everybody, hey, I got Medicare for all. It's done. It's you passed. Have it. <laughs> you have it. I would be so pissed off at him. Mm-hmm. I would despise him. I would I would not be okay with that. Yeah. Like I would not be going to rallies, I would not be cheering for him. 
you know, the only way that he would get my vote if he was running, uh, he would get my vote is if he were running a against a truly terrible Republican, which given the modern day Republican Party would probably be just any Republican. But still, I would not be satisfied with him. I would be pissed off. I would not be going to rallies cheering for him. He does not deserve your support. He does not deserve your admiration. Mm-hmm. If you have not already voted, please vote because this is our best opportunity to get us out of this horrific nightmare that we have been living in the last four years. We have an opportunity to actually make some important change. Now, I know that, you know, for those of you that are like very progressive and very far left, I know that this is not the opportunity that you might have wanted, that Joe Biden might not be the inspiring candidate that you want him to be. And I know that you're tired of hearing people say, oh, lesser of two evils. I know you're tired of people shaming you. And I'm not going to shame you. But what I am going to say is that under Joe Biden, if we do, you know, even if we don't take back the Senate, he will rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, which is an extremely important difference between him and Donald Trump. Mm Mm-hmm. He will have more humane immigration policies. He will hopefully get us back into the Iran deal. And he will be someone that can appoint future Supreme Court justices that will hopefully uh, eventually get rid of this horrific supermajority that is now on the Supreme Court. There are important and measurable differences There are ways in which a Biden presidency could make true progress for our country, Mm -hmm. and we have an opportunity to do it. Or we can have Donald Trump for another four years and take 20 steps back. Yeah. The choice is yours. The vote is yours. And if you are a Republican listening to this show as well, first of all, kudos Uh, (laughs) for sticking around. Um, but if you're considering voting for Trump, I think in some ways I understand why you might want to do that, but I think what's motivating you is not really Trump, nor is it really Biden. If, if I think if I were in your shoes, I would be worried about deficit spending I would be worried about, um, you know, harm to our healthcare system. I would be worried that, you know, pushes for progressive taxation and progressive welfare policies would leave us in a worse off place. I think that's I think that's what I'd be worried about if I were you. But my argument to you is this: Trump is harming you in all of those ways. Trump is undermining our fiscal stability by trying to give away taxes to people that need it the least. Um, Trump is, is, doesn't care about your freedoms, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and the Second Amendment. He cares about trying to retain power and pandering to some of the groups that do. Um, but when it comes to things like freedom of speech, his record is clear. He wants to shut it down unless it's speech that praises him. He, he undermines the stability 
of our nation's norms and our politics. He undermines our ability for our politics, as I'm sure you're worried about, to be resilient to, um, you know, people that capture the imagination of youth. You know, like he undermines the, the, the checks and balances that are in place that keep us from devolving as a political society. So if you're, if you're worried about your rights and the economy, you know, the deal with the devil that you may feel like you have to make with Donald Trump isn't there. Biden is not going to try to take away your guns. He's not going to shut down free speech. He's not going to shut down religion. He is a Christian. And in no way is he going to take those freedoms that you cherish. What he will do is help support a uh, a system of government that actually has like that actually works that uh, incorporates norms of the presidency cooperates abroad with our allies and doesn't cooperate with with international thugs and and dictators so if what you're worried about is that somehow a biden administration will usher in socialism it certainly won't but a Trump administration could harm us in ways that we'll, we won't be able to recover from. And so please consider voting for Biden. So now it's time to wrap up our episode with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? So it kind of hurts that my highlight this week is not the fact that I've closed on the house, but... Mm. The highlight is that I've been cleared to close on the house hmm. and we have a date set for that after, you know, af now that everything is said and done, we have a date for that uh, on Friday. So by the time I talk about this again, hopefully uh, I will have a new house. Yeah. And hopefully we'll also have a new president. <laughs> <laughs> Man, what a week. <laughs> yeah. God, if both of those things happen in the same week, I will be over the moon. Yeah, no kidding. That's what about excellent. you, Michael? I, my highlight is a big one this week. I have discovered the perfect COVID activity. Yeah? Yep. Paintball. <laughs> it's perfect. You can bring your own mask. You don't have to worry about it. You can rent a paintball gun, which they sanitize all the time. And by definition, you have to be far away from everybody. And everybody's faces is co are covered, and it's outdoors. <laughs> you know, and I've never been. You get to shoot everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been paintballing, but I've always wanted to. Oh, dude. Okay, so before you move, let's go. Um, I would love that. It'd be awesome to see you in person, and it is truly the one like one of the most fun and cathartic. I did a hood slide, you know, where you slide across the hood of a car under fire. I, slid, I jumped and slid across the hood of this parked car in the middle of this paintball field and hid behind a barrier and then shot some folks. It was so much fun. That sounds awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it was the most like a superhero I've ever felt, and so that is my highlight this week. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again next week. Bye.